The Legacy of John Williams Celebrating the music and the art of Maestro John Williams. This is Maurizio Cascato. Welcome to the new episode of the Legacy of John Williams podcast. Here with me, once again, my friend and associate Tim Burden. Hello, Tim. Nice to see you again. Maurizio, likewise. Good to see you. Good to see you too, my friend. And we are back again. It's a busy end of the year for us, isn't it? <laughs> so, But really, we have been graced with a slew of great John Williams archival soundtrack releases, uh, one of which we discussed in our last episode, the Heidi Jane Eyre 2 CD edition from Quartet Records, which we discussed with Mike Medicino and John Takis. And today we are here finally for our long-awaited episode dedicated to Hook, the Ultimate Edition 3 CD set from Lelaland Records. I know that many fans probably expected us to do this episode much sooner than we are actually doing, but you know, in agreement with Mike, we decided to let the release come out and let people receive their sets, enjoy the music and forming a new relationship with the music itself because there's so much to listen to in this 3CD set. As you probably know, Disc 1 and 2 presents the complete film score in chronological order with a selection of alternate cues at the end of disc two. And we have a third disc dedicated to more unused and alternate cues, and especially the songs that John Williams and Leslie Bricius wrote for the film when it was supposed to be a fully-fledged movie musical. As I was saying, we wanted people to have the best listening experience without having too much background information available at first and just enjoying the music. But finally, we are now able to talk about this wonderful release. And to do so, we are so happy to have here back again as a guest of the Legacy of John Williams podcast, soundtrack producer Mike Medicino. Hi, Mike. Nice to see you again and welcome back. Hi again, Maurizio and Tim. Hey, Mike. Good to see you guys and be with you guys again. And uh, thank you for doing this little uh, choreographed dance uh, with all these releases coming out. I was very glad we were able to give uh, Heidi and Jane Eyre uh, its proper play, uh, spotlight uh, because mm. they're both wonderful scores. And there is certainly a lot to talk about with Hook. And uh, thank you for doing it in the way that we're doing it also. 
Um, Great pleasure. There's a lot to say, and I'm very happy to have not weighed down everybody with all this detail um, too soon. So, um, But uh, it's appropriate to now do it. So in today's episode, we'll focus mostly on the film itself, its laborious making of process, how it sits in Steven Spielberg's filmography, and we'll also give some background information on how the release has come together, which is a journey in itself, as you will hear. So, Mike, this was truly a release long time in the making, to use <laughs> maybe a euphemism. So when did you start working on it? Wow. Um, so believe it or not, uh, it was initially thought of as... It's hard to even say it. It was initially thought of something for the 25th anniversary of the film, which would have been 2016. Uh, I, of course, was, when La La Land said, yes, we'd love to revisit it if we could find more material, I naturally was, yes, of course, great, I'm all on board. But that was about when we started that year, so it was a little bit too soon to undertake a search and hope to possibly make it out that year. It just wasn't going to happen. I think that there was supposed to be a the first 4K home video release at that time, but I think even that ended up getting delayed. Don't quite remember now. Mm. But that was really when it started. We only started the undertake for the search for material at that time, and it took a while to find it all, put it together, get it through approvals. It's obviously been seven years. I mean, Jim Titus, who did the art, has had one fewer kid then than he has now. So uh, it's, 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 been, it's been quite a while to get it all uh, put together. And uh, it's a long, long, long story. Yeah, and we'll get into more detail during the conversation about the release itself. But first, uh, let's give some context in terms of uh, speaking about the film itself and how it came together. Mike, your liner notes cover very well the process of this Steven Spielberg project. And perhaps it's best to go a little back in time and understand how the seeds of Hook were planted actually back in 1985 when Steven Spielberg announced a live-action film based on the classic James Barry tale in the form of a movie musical. But that period then turned into something very different uh, for him with such projects as The Color Purple and Empire of the Sun, taking Spielberg into a very different and maybe unexpected creative path. Right. Well, um, I think it was shortly after the success of E.T., really, where we started hearing that Steven Spielberg was interested in doing a first straight, seriously done, high-budget, live-action adaptation of Peter Pan. We remember a scene in... E.T., where the mother reads is reading Peter and Wendy to Gertie. We found out also that that actually happened in Stephen's childhood. Um, it was not depicted in The Fablemans, but it was an auto, very much an autobiographical moment. And I think because he had this sort of aura about him at that time of being Peter Pan-like and the boy who didn't grow up and always basically said that his mother was Peter Pan. The connection was an obvious one. It did go into pre-production and was supposed to be filmed in London. And it, and basically he pulled the plug on it. 
but he had Elliot Scott, who was the production designer on Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, designing sets, and he was going to do a good deal of casting uh, over there. The prevailing anecdote about that production that was it was that it was going to star Michael Jackson. Yes, that in fact was never true. Uh, Steven Spielberg totally debunked that in the press. I think is that Michael Jackson very much wanted to play the part and saw himself as the character, and was of course very very inspired by E.T. to the point of doing the story album with Quincy Jones that uh, won a Grammy. Then uh, through that connection, you know, Quincy Jones and Steven Spielberg were developing a musical, more of a street type musical like Fame or that kind of thing. Maybe more like West Side Story than anything else. And I think a lot of people assumed that the discussion of that and the idea of Peter Pan and the presence of Michael Jackson must have meant that there was going to be a musical version of Peter Pan with Michael Jackson playing the character. But that actually was, um, none of that was true. Uh, Jackson was very much around during the filming of The Color Purple with Quincy and The Goonies. And he was there like for Whoopi Goldberg's one woman show where she treated the whole group at Amblin there to her Broadway show routine. That ended up with getting her cast in The Color Purple. But that was the extent of it. It was really planned to be, to come after Temple of Doom. Over the course of researching this project, I dug a little more deeply and found out that Peter Pan was actually not going to be an Amblin production. So the screenplay was by Walter Parks and Lawrence Lasker, was done as part of a development deal they made at Paramount, which ended up yielding no finished films. But that was one of them, and Spielberg was attached to direct it basically outside of Amblin. Uh, the interesting thing is that uh, someone I hope that we can um, have on the uh, podcast subsequently, who is a um, very big part of um, getting helping this release be as great as it is, is uh, Dennis Cordell. But he, he made contact with Larry Lasker and found out that uh, they were told that there were going to be songs in it, but they were asked to write the script straight. It's really sort of not the way that you make a musical. You really need to spot out your songs first and then uh, build your book, as it were, as they call it on Broadway, around it. So it doesn't really work to write a straight dramatic piece and then shoehorn songs into it. But that was kind of the plan that they had in the works. At that point, the lyrics were going to be done by Alan and Marilyn Bergman, who, of course, had a long history of collaborating with John Williams. And at that time, when John was with the Boston Pops, they were doing a lot of things there. That was the team at first. Dennis also reached out to Alan and found out that they had mapped out some ideas for songs, but nothing was ever actually written lyric-wise. So the question has always been, during this development period, Steven Spielberg has always said that John Williams was writing songs. So the question was, what was written then, if anything, and did anything ultimately get transferred to the hook score? So the answer to that is yes, one song. And it's a melody that's in the score that we actually hear towards the very beginning when the uh, children of Peter Pan have been kidnapped. There's a police inspector there at the house in Kensington 
uh, played by Phil Collins. Yes. Um, and we, we back out the window and we hear this uh, theme, which we call the mother's theme. It's featured much more prominently way towards the end of the film. seems to be the one that was written in 1985. And when the plug was pulled into the proverbial trunk, as we call it, mm -hmm. it went. It had been, before that, discussed with Leslie Burkus, who, of course, as a lot of listeners might know, I became very good friends with. But he told me that he had known that there was an expectation that he was going to be engaged um, for this Peter Pan project, but nothing ever happened. So it seems that they made a switch from the Bergmans to him at some point, but then the, the plug was pulled. So Steven Spielberg um, went and made The Color Purple. It was uh, during the production of that, which was a very important film in his career because it was a transition to more adult, serious uh, type of themes. He was with, at that time, Amy Irving, who gave birth to his first child. It turned out that Spielberg was filming the childbirth scene early in The Color Purple when he got the call that uh, Amy was going into labor. <laughs> then ran to the hospital. Being Steven Spielberg, he videotaped <laughs> the birth and ended up uh, taking the sound of the crying of his son, Max, and using the crying in, in yeah. post-production of The Color Purple to put in as the baby's cries in the birthing scene. That pretty much uh, changed him. Once he became a father... He really lost interest in making Peter Pan. But it had gone as far as Paramount actually announcing the project to exhibitors as something on their 1986 slate. But the project was canceled and it opened up John Williams' schedule because they'd all had expected to be over in London for a good deal of time making this thing. And uh, the reason why he got Space Camp was because of the hole in his schedule there, mm -hmm. which ended up being a nice way to do one final project with Lionel Newman and Lynn Engel. Lionel um, had just retired. Mm -hmm. And that was sort of the, um, hard to believe that it's the same three people that did Lost in Space 20-something years earlier. Lionel retired, mm -hmm. and it was at that point in when he finished it in 86 that John left his office at 20th Century Fox, which he'd had since 1964, and went over to the newly built Amblin where um, for his new office where he where it still is today so that's where it was sort of left Spielberg went on to make Empire of the Sun well I actually should intercede with another little bit of a kernel of information there was a brief time in the early 1990s where I was friends with Christian Bale uh, I met him at the premiere of Ridley Scott's film 1492 we started talking we then connected we hung out together we went to uh, movies and 
other stuff together that I won't go into, but between the <laughs> late 92 and when he left to go make uh, Little Women in Canada, we hung around a bit. I stayed at their house in England when I was there for the holidays in 93 and so forth. But uh, he told me that when they first started shooting Empire of the Sun, that Steven Spielberg said he was thinking about it again and might do it and thought that Christian, who would have been 14 or 15 when they were finished, um, to play Peter. Uh, and he really, if you think about it, at that age, probably would have been the idyllic yes. Peter Pan. Yes. Um, but by the mm -hmm. time they finished shooting, he totally changed his mind and said, I've permanently abandoned all thoughts of uh, doing Peter Pan. But it had gone on to the point that Tom Stoppard, who had written the screenplay for Empire of the Sun, had become the sort of Amblin in-house kind of script supervisor or script yes. editor. Yes. And while they were filming Empire of the Sun, he did a new draft of Peter Pan that uh, I haven't seen, but it was one more um, spurt of attempting to do it in early 87. So, but by the time Empire of the Sun opened in late, at the end of 87, Spielberg had said publicly, I've permanently abandoned the uh, idea. I don't, I don't want to do Peter Pan. Yes, he, he, so, also, he was trying to pursue more adult projects like I mean he was attached to Raymond for for a long time right before pulling out to do Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade yeah, yeah he passed on Rain Man and Big co-written by his sister uh -huh. uh, in order to do the third Indiana Jones yes it's interesting that he followed that up by making Always so it's interesting that those projects all dealt in a way with um, well first Empire of the Sun was about sort of the war's effect on the childhood spirit. Yes, yes. Um, and then Last Crusade and Always was about people being responsible parents and responsible in the relationship. And then parallel with that, the relationship with Amy Irving was coming to an end. So uh, it was a very interesting time in Spielberg's life and career, They've which have often kind of paralleled each other. But that was the end of Peter Pan until along came uh, Jim Hart, with the screenplay. And that's a very, very big story with a lot of drama and a lot of Hollywood backstage gossipy stuff that I don't really feel like going into, but maybe the subsequent episode, our other guests will touch on that a little bit. But the idea for Hook was the game changer. It sort of unlocked this idea of how to finally go to the world of James Barry, because now you had a, a grown-up Peter Pan who is a irresponsible husband and father, who then has his children kidnapped by Captain Hook uh, for revenge because he wants a rematch, basically. Peter, who's forgotten everything about who he is, has to go back to Neverland and remember that he was Peter Pan, rediscover his childhood spirit, learn how to fly again in order to save his children, and uh, ends up becoming the responsible, well-rounded adult. So just the concept of that was a game changer. Mm -hmm. Again, it was a lot of Hollywood studios and agents and other things involved in the whole thing. It's a lot, a lot of drama, Hollywood's version of a soap opera. You know, he ended up committing to it, and it was made through TriStar Pictures in 1991. And that's kind of like the long backstory. So when this came about, John Williams, of course, was going to do the score. So um, the trunk was pulled out and to see what was in it, and... That melody for mothers that I mentioned 
was, uh, you know, Leslie Brickus got the call. Actually, they were on the phone talking about how well Home Alone had gone. And then the telephone rang and John, the second line uh, rang and John answered it and said, Leslie, that was Stephen. Would you like to do Hook? So that's how that happened. Leslie ended up writing lyrics for this song, Mothers, but that song ended up being replaced by When You're Alone, which we know because it survived into the finished film and the original soundtrack album and was nominated for an Academy Award. into a musical was, you know, um, Steven Spielberg couldn't fight it. He yielded to it. And when Leslie first came on board and they had the first round of meetings, they mapped out song sequences for the film. Initially, just the three that we see in the finished film, the uh, school play stage production of Peter Pan at the beginning. We want to be like Peter Um, sequence where the Lost Boys take the adult Peter through workout. And then Peter's daughter Maggie sings kind of a lullaby to, in the original script, it was yes. to um, other children who were imprisoned. But then, then it changed to her singing it to the pirates to explain to them what a mother was. And then the concept changed, and the idea was that she would be singing a song to get over her loneliness and separation from her mother. So that's what was mapped out originally, and there was going to be a very big introduction to Neverland with a pirate town fully fleshed out musical sequence. Down in the deep below, full 50 fathoms, dead men are sure to get to sleep tonight. You'll meet your mates below, hail and hearty dead men, dead for the deep are very cheap, dead right. Low below, we're food for all the fishes. Low below, they're having us for lunch. Low below, the fishes can be vicious. Down at 50 fathoms where the wind don't blow. Where the sharks are to your boats, turn your teeth to coral stones. Near the grave of Davy Jones, low below. was filmed it apparently went well enough that steven spielberg got excited and just kept saying let's add a song here add a song there and so john and leslie were just well leslie particularly was writing more lyrics than you can possibly imagine concepts changed and uh, ideas changed i mean it, ju- it just it went, went on for months and months and months yeah. all through 1991 there was thought about having a song in the end credits 
Um, in the end, none of the rest of them were used, but what we ended up with in total, including the three that are in the movie, are nine songs. And now uh, we have the, uh, all the answers and the, the other six finally presented uh, on the Ultimate Edition soundtrack release. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Take a breath, Mike. Take a breath. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it was astonishing, Mike. Thank you for sharing so much with so much detail this chronicle of this crucial period in Steven Spielberg's career. And listening to this film masterclass, I should say, uh, I was reminded how in Steven Spielberg's filmography, we find the seeds of his love for musicals and his desire to make a musical, even back in earlier projects like uh, 1941, that great dancing sequence um, on John's music and Swing, 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 which is absolutely staged as a movie musical sequence. There's the opening of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom with that beautiful Bursley Berkeley influenced opening number. there are also moments in a film like The Color Purple, for example. Of course we have songs in there, but uh, some of the moments are treated truly with the language and the vernacular of the movie musical. Would you agree with this, Mike? I absolutely do. In particular, the um, God's Trying to Tell You Something sequence, which is a perfect Spielberg moment of, uh, you know, two disconnected people. Do it. It's almost like it's Color Purple's version of the conversation from the, with the mothership in Close Encounters. Yes. In how, mm-hmm. you know, yep. this, and, and, and you're doing a, uh, an estranged father and daughter reuniting with mm-hmm. two styles of music all uh, coming together, but yes. it's shot very much um, as you would if you were doing it as a musical. Oh, you can't sleep at there was enough there for it to be transformed into a stage musical which we are also this season getting the film version of coming out and Spielberg as well as Oprah Winfrey who helps bring it to the stage are um, producers on it 
you know, Steven Spielberg has remained connected with that property all the way through. But, you know, certainly when he made the film in 1985, there certainly was showing uh, a penchant for the musical genre there. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that apparently never left him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And pivoting the discussion to John Williams and then bringing him into the framework of what we are talking about, uh, I'm reminded of an interview that he did maybe 20 years ago or so when a journalist asked him if he would ever consider writing an opera. And he replied, saying something along the lines that he didn't consider himself a very good composer for the voice, which is a very strange thing to say for him because, I mean, he wrote several songs throughout his career. And he also tried uh, to do a stage musical. Actually, in 1975, he the stage musical called Thomas and the King, which is a kind of an obscure element. And so it's even more interesting to think about how Steven Spielberg perhaps convinced him to write many songs for for Hook, for this project. And going back to what I was saying in the introduction about how the third disc presents this journey through the many songs that he and Leslie Bricus wrote for the, for the project, it was so revelatory for me to discover how basically pretty much of the themes that we know and love from the score were generated as songs, truly. And that's why perhaps the score is so tuneful and melodic and singable and lyrical. And in many cues we hear references and quotes of these melodies. sure where you would draw the line but certainly um normally john williams or any composer would not start composing themes until after the film was finished so Mm -hmm. to the extent uh, that he composed melody lines during filming or before seeing a finished film yes so you've got a half a dozen themes that were written with the purpose of having lyrics put to them it does uh, make, naturally, for a very... Even in the absence of lyrics, the s- score still remains, quote-unquote, lyrical. Very much so. And when you combine these uh, demos with the fully fleshed-out orchestra and scoring for the film, you are naturally going to come away with a very, very different uh, impression, a very different connection, I think, with the music. And I wanted to give uh, the listeners the same opportunity that I had in working on it to discover that uh, rather than being spoon-fed, you know, conversation and a lot of, and filling heads with a lot of details about how it all came together and the nuts and the bolts. We could have, we, we could have just, or maybe people are expecting even, that this would be alternates and songs just thrown there in like a bonus section but this is not that at all it just naturally organically came together in this way um we came up with sort of a different alternate journey through the narrative of hook that almost plays like a concept album for a musical that never was 
I was not prepared for that, for, um, for it to be sort of transformed into its own new thing rather than just be something that we got and went ahead and hunted down to make sure we included this, that, or the other and that it was all there. It actually has its own presentational power uh, once it's uh, just based on how the finished album came together. Yeah, and I think it's important to state as well that what you've done in, in actually comprising the full kind of film cue running order is you've prioritized the listening experience because, you know, there are some of the unused cues which you've put in there to make it a, a more satisfying um, experience for listeners, which is absolutely, totally uh, the ilk of, of John Williams thinking. So, I mean, I guess that's why you were channeling that, that thought, yeah? Mm-hmm. Right. Well, I mean, the question is always when you get material, what do I do with it? And we already knew there were alternates to include, and a lot of fans have, you know, dissected the music based on what was released, not released, what was floating around, etc. You you want to make sure you include everything that people are expecting, but the question is how. I've said this a few times and in a few different contexts, but there it, things reach a point where kind of it tells you how it wants to go, and you have yeah. to be sensitive to that process and let the music have its own power and uh, see how pay attention to how you're feeling and what you're thinking and see what ideas come uh, but I feel ultimately like these things reach a point where they tell me how they need to go <laughs> I think one of the many pluses that we have thanks to this new release is the fact that we can now listen to the complete film presentation uh, of the soundtrack of the score and appreciate the true storytelling quality of John Williams's music and his approach to, to film music. And we should also mention the fact that the 1991 Sony soundtrack album was already one of John's most chronological album presentations up until that time. I mean, save for a few tracks and few assemblies, it was mostly chronological, you know, respecting the narrative film order. And it also had a very generous running time, like 75 minutes. Well, that's right, because it was the, the kind of expensive era of soundtracks, wasn't it, when you think back to 91? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I do distinctly remember back in the day, cardboard promotional stands... Uh, in record stores, uh, you know, advertising the score. And I think in the United States, there was also a TV commercial airing uh, for the soundtrack album. So they absolutely spared no expense to promote the soundtrack. But back to the music itself, I think that one of the joys of listening any John Williams score in its film chronological presentation is that you become much more appreciative of his ability to intertwine themes and developing them throughout the narrative and giving you this very full sense of a musical storytelling. And the hook score is absolutely one of his best in this regard because 
it can be enjoyed as a musical representation of the film, but it can also be enjoyed as a, like a symphonic poem or a ballet or even a musical without words. Speaking of the actual content of this new release, uh, Mike, in 2012 we had an expanded edition of Hook, again from Wonderland Records, that presented a lot of unreleased music, at least officially. It was the very first time we could hear some of the alternates and the new cues as well, but I think that release posed some challenges when it was produced, and I think the end result wasn't perhaps what fans were actually expecting. I know that you didn't work on that specifically, uh, that was dealt by other people, but perhaps you saw this opportunity also to maybe correct some of the wrongs of that previous release, am I correct? Well, definitely. Uh, this is a rabbit hole to go down, and I I guess we might as well go down it. But no, no, I was not involved in that one, but... Uh, you know, maybe the time has come to tell the story as some of the details as diplomatically as I possibly can. And the reason why I think it's on my mind is because concurrent with La La Land's release of this is um, something that I can shamelessly promote, which is this massive super deluxe edition of The Sound of Music coming from Kraft Recordings, which I'm very, very, very proud of. And I'm very, very happy that they're coming out at the same time because the sound of music being from a major label, there's extra budget for PR. And so I'm trying to see how I can use that to also get some ex extra coverage on Hook from the standpoint of it being a musical. We'll see, we'll see what happens there. But, um, you know, I'd like more people to find out about this because I think it certainly would have interest in the Broadway musical world. The sound of music was a long time coming. The main reason why it had to wait until now or why a properly done version wasn't done in the past was because of a independent producer attached to Sony Music, which was Didier Deutsch. He'd been there a long time. He'd done a lot of great projects, some terrific uh, compilations and reissues. But I think what our specialized fan base wants is not something he particularly understood. But something happened uh, when in, in 2010 when we did a version of Home Alone for the 20th anniversary with La La Land. Didier was not happy that it was done without him because that was on CBS Records, the original album was, and therefore if someone was to expand it, he felt that he should have been involved in it. And Nick Redman and I did that using elements that were not the most ideal at the time, but 
it was all we had, and there was really no other way to do it other than combining that with the original album. In our view, the assembly needed to be done by me, but uh, Didier was not happy about that. It is for that reason that all evidence that I can observe is that he stopped me from working on Hook when La La Land did it in 2012. So I had no part in that whatsoever. What ended up happening was that they didn't have everything. The scoring process on the film was went on so long that uh, they had to get the album in 1991 finished before they completed recording. So they reached, they reached a certain point where everything was libraried and cataloged. It was done, but then there were sessions after that, and the tapes from those sessions were nowhere to be found. So what Didier located back in 2011 were half-inch stereo tapes uh, with Sean Murphy's mixes of the cues on them, but only up to the point where the album was finished. Anything recorded after the album was finished and everything to do with pre-recording was nowhere to be found. I was asked at the time about the songs by our friend Dan Schweiger, who did the liner notes for that release, to speak with Leslie about getting the songs because uh, there were demos that had been recorded later in around 2001, 2002. Maybe in a subsequent conversation we can explain why that was the case. Uh, I did go to him and he had those and was willing to have them be on the release. And he personally spoke to Steven Spielberg at I think it was the Kennedy Center in late December. And Steven Spielberg said, no, I don't want them included. So that was the end of that. Once um, that decision was made, I really had no part of that release. I think what happened, and again, not my project, but I'll say it as far as I have observed it, La La Land was insistent on including some of the material that was not covered by the sets of scoring masters that were available. And so there was no option at that time other than using the stem that was supplied by Sony Pictures. And that would be in a very compromised audio quality with the dips in level yes. to match what the, what the film needed. And it would have funky edits and oddities about it. But it was I think it was just felt that the fans demanded it, so they had to have it in some way. Mm -hmm. um, so those things were added to the release, which made it maybe a little bit even clunkier. Mm -hmm. But at that time, the mastering had to be done at the facility in New York that Sony Music used, which was Battery Studios. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a terrific facility, and there are some great engineers there. But La La Land ran into a lot of problems doing things that way. Yeah. I think one of the projects where that was particularly the case was Dances with Wolves because every time there was a fix or a change they would get a bill for a whole day's mastering again which is very very different when I work or Doug Schwartz where if you need a fix it's like okay yeah no problem the mastering bill is the mastering bill we weren't charging any of these labels an arm and a leg to do little fixes it was not an ideal way of working but there was really nothing they could do about it okay uh, they did do an excellent job on 1941 and The Fury uh, those turned out great. Mm -hmm, yeah. But by that point, it was established that uh, John's people wanted only me to do the audio. And Jaws was going on at the same time and a lot of Horner projects. So there was nothing anybody could 
say about that. So we were able to take newly discovered material from Home Alone and do the definitive version of Home Alone for the 25th anniversary. And of course, by that time, I was in a rhythm with um, my friendship with Leslie Brickus. This is all kind of just like the organic evolution of everything, but of course everybody wanted Hook to be redone. Yeah. And one of the reasons for that was something very strange, which is that very shortly after the La La Land 2012 release came out, uh, there was better sounding material from some of those later scoring sessions that started appearing shall we say, privately and circulating among collectors so everybody knew that there was other material to be found. I ended up finding out how and why that actually happened. In 2002, when Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets was going on and John Williams was not going to be able to um, fully do the project because of many other films that year, and everything was being done by William Ross was going to conduct it. He reworked a lot of John Williams material from the first Harry Potter, but also some other scores. So a, um, the music editor, Ken Wanberg, sent a bunch of dat tapes over to the UK. John Williams specifically requested Hook because uh, he told them that if there's any place you should go to get material, it might be reworked and repurposed you know, Hook would sort of be in kind of the same idiom. So the material was sent to the UK, so Ken Wanberg had it, but all it was was the last complete take of each cue. So it wasn't necessarily the correct performance. But that was sent over there. Sometime years later, things started leaking out, but it all came from the UK. So that's when I think that some Harry Potter material and, um, and this Hook material started leaking out around that time. And that's how that happened. Wow. Well, this is very interesting, I think, because yes. it's revealing about uh, the methodologies that sometimes, I guess, are used whenever there's a crunch in terms of deadlines and schedules yeah. and, mm -hmm. you know, putting everything together in a very efficient way. I think this is a very interesting insight into the whole creative process of mm, making a movie score. So that led you to determine the, the state of things. Right. And then the next thing that happened was in 2016 is that we did the Jurassic Park collection mm -hmm. for La La Land. And out of the blue, I get a call from Didier telling me that that release turned out great and that he is now gone from Sony Music and was now working at Universal Music Group. And he now wanted to do something for E.T. for the 35th anniversary and do it uh, in-house as a UMG release. You know, wanted to talk to me about it, but it seemed like he really didn't want me involved in it. And he went to John Williams's office in management and, um, and pitched it, and they said, if you want to do this, you have to engage Mike. Didier apparently didn't like that, and he called up uh, Amblin and explained to them how he wanted to do it. And the answer from over there was, if you want to do this, you have to engage Mike. So that uh, left us with a long period of developing E.T. 35th Anniversary Edition as an in-house release with UMG. 
because I think what DDA was really had in mind was taking all the existing CDs, 1982 version that later was on CD, um, basically the MCA records, 1996 and 2002, and cherry picking from all of them to put together what in his mind was a definitive set where what uh, I had been um, hearing from the very beginning of working with Bruce Botnick, which went back to 2008, is that he wanted to hopefully get back to E.T. someday because he wasn't really thrilled with how the previous CDs had sounded. The idea being that we would pull the original masters, do new high-resolution first-generation transfers, and that we would work together on mixing and mastering it, which is a far different thing than uh, Didier had in mind. Okay. And honestly, I was really looking forward to working with him. Uh, on ET because uh, I thought that the best thing we could possibly do is um, get together on a project and get past any awkwardness that had been there before and just do a really great project together. And uh, but eventually um, everything just started going silent. Mm-hmm. Months went by. Yeah. I at some point I was contacted. It might have been a phone call by the A and R person with UMG that Lawland had normally routinely been dealing with. And he said, you know, Didier works for the Interscope side of UMG and really doesn't have access to the Geffen side. Um, UMG is a big conglomerate that owns a bunch of labels, but apparently some people on the Geffen side were saying, who is this person who's trying to get into our masters and and do stuff? And he was stopped from it. The problem we had was that uh, John's and Stephen's offices already knew it was coming and we're expecting it. So um, I was asked, you know, since we can't do this internally, would La La Land do it? And of course, I said, I think I could speak for them and say yes. It was um, in the, at the very same meeting when I told them that, this just happened to be a coincidence that I had also had been speaking with Sony Music about Titanic for its 20th anniversary. I didn't know that they were going to let that title go. I thought it was popular enough that they might have also wanted to do it internally. I kind of gave them that option, but their response was sending the reissue request form to La La Land. I'm like, okay. So in, I, I went with MV and Matt from La La Land out to a little Italian restaurant that's now closed that we used to like and, and, and let them know that they were going to be doing E.T. and Titanic. So it was quite an interesting. That must have been a, going that must into, have been a lot of red so, wine drunk that night. Yes, yes, yes. So, <laughs> go, so going into 2017, uh, which also was very much taken up by uh, my work with Leslie on Doctor Doolittle for its 50th anniversary. That was That's right. that was quite a year. That was quite a year. So uh, yeah, and you and you came over to London as well. I remember for Doolittle, you did a right. You did so a great did, right, Q and A. Right. We were there with the Brickuses. Yeah, it was great. And then um, that was a fun trip. And I went right from there to New York. So um, you know, it was a, a Shaftesbury Avenue one day, and then Broadway the next day. And I am not sure to bring this all back. And I hope that this uh, people are finding this interesting. There was a rhythm going I had of going to London and New York in the fall. COVID kind of messed that up. Mm-hmm. But I'd had a rhythm of a few years in a row doing that. And I really liked it, especially because I would connect with uh, Leslie if um, he was over there at the time. They usually came to California in early December and were here through the Oscars. But uh, they had a place in London there on the river. And it was always nice to uh, connect with them there. One of the trips, it was either 2017 or 2018, following the Royal Albert Hall concert that John Williams was supposed to conduct the LSO. 
mm-hmm. and uh, then took ill and couldn't. It was after that where I came back to New York, and usually when I'm in New York, the round of meetings is kind of the same. One of them would be my friends at Rogers and Hammerstein. I think this would have been 2018, where I went there for the meeting. I was scheduled to go next that day to Sony Music, and I told... Ted Chapin, who was the president of the R&H organization, whom I've known since 1993, I said, I'm going to Sony Music after this. I was very frank about it. I said, now that Didier is gone, I'm going to propose doing The Sound of Music again. Because you see, The Sound of Music was something that Nick Redman and I pulled Scoring Masters for in 1994 and did a gold CD that came in with a 30th anniversary Laserdisc box set. After that... Mm. RCA Victor slash Sony Music did their own 30th anniversary reissue of the soundtrack album for which I wrote the liner notes. And then after that, I had constantly proposed doing the definitive Sound of Music over the years where we merged the newly discovered soundtrack master with all of the film scoring masters and do it right. Mm -hmm. And uh, and every single time it was stopped. And uh, instead, it was put together by Didier, who would simply cherry-pick that gold CD and do a new master of the soundtrack album. And so we had one in 2000, one in 2005, one in 2010, and then a 50th anniversary version in 2015. And I had to learn a new word doing the project this time around, which was quinquennial, <laughs> which is something that happens every five years. So got a fa- fancy, fancy new word. It was basically each time around, it was a regurgitation of and kind of just, um, you know, reconfiguration of existing things. People were never really getting what he wanted. So by 2017 or 18, and I can't remember which year this was, I remember having the UMG meeting and then Rogers and Hammerstein and then Sony Music and getting on the city bike was there at the time. So you just rent the little bicycle and pedal around Manhattan. So I said, well, now that Didier's gone from Sony Music, I was going to talk to them about finally doing the Sound of Music properly. And Ted Chapin said, don't do that when you meet with them. I'm going to take you into confidence about something. Concord Group has purchased our company. At the end of 2020, those RCA Victor rights for the Sound of Music soundtrack album expire and revert to us. Mm-hmm. So as Concord is a music label, that means that starting 2021 we can do it all ourselves. So I think you should just wait for that. So that's what I did. Wow, that was a very helpful coffee chat. Yeah. already going in principle so um you know sony knew it was happening and because we had started gathering the material on it or looking for it but there came a real shocker because uh the stereo scoring masters that had been used for the 2012 version could not be found and i reached out to didier and he insisted that he had returned them to sony pictures when the project was completed. It led to a whole flurry of emails and Amblin getting involved and everybody trying to figure out where these 
half-inch stereo tapes had gone. It turned out that this was not the case at all. The tapes, the 22 rolls, were still sitting in the vaulted battery studios. So you can, you know, accept that for whatever it's worth, but that's where they were. Finally, they were sent back, and they also gave the raw data from those transfers that had been done then, and that gave me the starting point for the project. That's when we got into searching deep storage, the salt mines in the middle of the United States for where the material all was eventually located. And that's a story in itself, because in a nutshell, what happened is that Sony as a corporation was um, just coming in to purchase Columbia and TriStar Pictures. And so there was going to be a lot of changeover of personnel and of methodologies. So when Hook wrapped up, things were not barcoded or inventoried in the same way that Sony was going to come in and do. So there was really no paper trail on things. Everything was just thrown into boxes marked hook, and we didn't know what anything was. If it was music, if it was Foley, if it was ADR, if it was negative trims, we just didn't know. So Sony uh, asset management team undertook this and worked with um, the people in the deep storage. We literally had to show them what boxes looked like, and when they found boxes that looked like that, we said, okay, anything you see like that, pull and send. All of it was sent to California, and eventually we lined up end-to-end -end by date all of the recording on Hook until wow. we had every hole filled, and we can finally have a complete picture of uh, everything that had been recorded for the project. Wow. <laughs> this is another incredible story that you share with us today, Mike. And uh, I think it truly explains all the intricacies and, and the hard work that there is behind the scenes when you have to put all these things together. And this is truly a an Indiana Jones-like effort. That's right. process began to put it together and I had an assembly finished I think by the end of 2016 or early 2017 mm -hmm. and the first person it went to would have been Leslie who loved it then it went to John Williams and John loved it and then the next stop would be Steven Spielberg first it went to Frank Marshall Kathy Kennedy's office they listened and said yes we love this too you have our full support but it all had to sit and wait for uh, Steven Spielberg we had a very busy 2017 with those expansions of remasterings of Close Encounters and E.T. And then in 2018, the anniversary reissues of Saving Private Ryan and Schindler's List. That year was also very much taken up by Harry Potter and Superman and Dracula. We were really on a roll with a lot of projects, so I was content to wait with Hook for... Uh, I just figured the more releases we had at Amblin the more comfortable Steven Spielberg would feel about saying yes to Hook, including all the songs. So uh, that was one of the reasons why 
the weight. And another person who was very important to me was Marty Cohen, who was Stephen's longtime post-production supervisor. Wonderful, wonderful guy. He passed in 2020, not from COVID. I first met him way back in 1989. I was four. Um, (laughs) We believe you. (laughs) The Criterion Laserdisc of Close Encounters, which was going to be the first time that it was going to be in widescreen, the first time it was going to be almost the 1977 version, not quite, put out. But I was very, I was, that was sort of my first professional job. And on the back of the jacket, I think the, whose name is on there the most is tied between Steven Spielberg and me. But uh, <laughs> I sat with Marty um, as the film, film was being transferred and got to know him then. Later on, when bonus features were starting, I had some meetings with him in the mid-90s and uh, on and off again. We ended up working very closely together in 2014 for 1941, the extended cut where I wanted to make some musical changes to to put it back to the way that John had scored them. And we had to also supervise the seamless branching and all that. So we worked very closely on that and became very, very good friends. I absolutely adored him, but uh, he was a big advocate for the expanded hook release and really pushed me to find everything and was thrilled when we finally did. When the, I'll just share this, that when the COVID lockdown happened, I one of the little things I did for myself was I watched every Steven Spielberg movie and I did it in the order in which the story takes place. Mm. So like I would start with Amistad and then do Lincoln and then do War Horse, whatever that order was, and all the way up to end with like AI, a minority report. But uh, after each chunk of films, maybe two, three films, Marty and I would get on the phone, have long conversation and talk about each film. Oh, I'd get all of his uh, recollections about it and everything. And we never had the last one. I think the last one was the three futuristic ones. We were going to talk about AI, Minority Report and Ready Player One. And it was after I had finished watching them, but before we could have our conversation that I got uh, the word that he had passed. But uh, dear, dear man, who I think I dedicated maybe always to him when we finally got that done, but very, very supportive and very helpful. Um, Mm. And he was one of the people that um, I spoke to when something else very important happened that ended up contributing to the delay of the hook release. We were kind of ready to go once we got to 2019. Then it was announced that Steven Spielberg was going to remake West Side Story. I had, of course, lots of feelings about that because I worked very closely with Robert Wise. Incidentally, Star Trek The Motion Picture was another release that had come out on the Sony label back in 1999, I think, that Didier was involved in, Yes, that we actually tried to stop because we got the green light to do the director's edition before that, or at least prospectively, we were going to be doing that. And we thought we should hold the soundtrack back to be released in conjunction with the movie. But they went to Paramount and did some kind of tap dance and ended up uh, um, having it come out. I think of every cue they added to the original soundtrack album on that release, only one was the correct performance. So there was another one that had a wait another 12, 13 years to do properly with Bruce Botnick when we did a three CD version for La Land Records and then subsequent one that did tie in with the director's edition 4K release in 2022. 
but there was another one that, you know, you know, not only that, but I think um, that we also tried back in the DVD, we wanted to include an isolated score track or to present the alternate unused early cues that Jerry Goldsmith had done synced to the picture. And Sony Music is the one that uh, put a stop to that. Okay. But to put the whammy on that whole story, it was eventually discovered that Sony actually didn't have the soundtrack rights anymore, even in 1999 when they did that Sony Legacy edition. They had expired five years early and no one bothered to check. So that's why Paramount has actually had to um, sort that out with them for all of the releases that had happened in subsequent years. And now the score to Star Trek, the motion picture, is completely controlled by Paramount Music. So, you know, there can be a lot of frustration when you uh, look back at things that happened in the past. things and I'm sorry I have to be kind of so candid about it but I'm just happy that Star Trek Hook and The Sound of Music are all now done properly. Mm -hmm. I think your your candid uh, demeanor is to be applauded Um, certainly because to be honest we all feel the same. Yes. I I think what's also key to highlight Mike I know you feel this Uh, Richie and I both know because we we helped and worked on it with you Fiddler on the Roof was also a shambles, let's be honest, you know, way back. But you fixed that. To be fair, you know, Didier just wrote the liner notes, but he's also responsible for picking up on a erroneous quote from Norman Jewison saying that the, the orchestra was played by the London Symphony. Yeah. And then that album ended up mm-hmm. being credited to them. I know. Yes. And as we now know, it was not the London Symphony, right? It was Norman Jewison's memory from 40 years earlier, but in fact, it was not them. There might have been one or two LSO members on it. It was mostly Philharmonic uh, members, if I recall, because you got us into the yeah, Sydney Sachs papers and, and, and got us the roster, and we saw who actually was on it. I mean, some unbelievable musicians were on it, the people that played on James Bond scores and everything. I mean, it was unbelievable. Mm. But uh, this is just the difference, to me, in all humility, of doing the homework properly yeah, and really right. making sure you know what yeah. you're doing and what you're, what you're talking yes. about because otherwise you shouldn't be doing it. it or if you're going to do it have the sense to seek out the people who yes. can help and can provide more information and, and I have always been very much willing to offer help even anonymously and, f- and freely if it helps make a project what it should be. Yeah and this speaks also about the importance of film preservation and film music preservation. Yes. I mean, it's so important to uh, take care of all the details and nuances. I mean, it's not just like obsessing over subtleties, but it's about respecting also the wishes of the artists because we are talking about John Williams and he's the first one who excels at high quality kind of work. Yeah, and the people on the front lines that actually make this music the John Williams, the Sean Murphy, the Bruce Botnick, Ken Lomberg, Herbie Spencer, the orchestra, all of them, they make their decisions at the time for a reason, the performance or the way that something sounds, you know? So it's like we owe it to them and to ourselves, really, to have it be accurate. It does require work and it requires homework and careful attention and careful listening. Uh, It's time-consuming, 
It really, really is. I mean, I'm working on a project now where uh, the recreation of the performance edits is um, very, very laborious because it's it's a score from more recent years. So there's a lot of little nipping and tucking and pulling up a frame here and pulling back a frame there and stretching and you know being elastic with uh, with your timing. And so to get that back to the state in which something was originally recorded takes time. It takes yes. time to do it right. There are a lot yeah. of quick and easy paths that you, you could take. And yes, it's true. Probably nine out of 10 people would never know the difference. But I feel that, you know, we owe it to the people that actually make this music to see that, that the wrong thing is not out there. get back to Marty Cohen and Spielberg announcing he's doing West Side Story, I thought about it. And remembering back to Leslie Brickus getting that no about including the songs on the 2012 release and knowing that despite who he is, that Steven Spielberg can feel very insecure on occasion. He had already, I think, gone on record as not saying the kindest words about Hook. So... We needed to tread very carefully. So I said, Marty, if Stephen's going to be making West Side Story and is now going to get into this whole world of pre-recording and being a successful director of a screen musical, I have a concern. And that concern is that uh, somebody might catch him at an insecure moment and throw the hook songs in front of him and he'll say no again. <laughs> Yeah. So I, uh, so, so, and I mean, and he really, and shouldn't have his confidence shaken while he's shooting or, or dubbing or whatever. Should not have his confidence shaken by somebody reminding him of his somewhat ill-advised attempt to turn Hook into a musical, you know. So I said, I think maybe we should wait until it's done. Uh, you know, let it be finished and hopefully be a success and then go back to him. And he says, you're very, very smart and uh, you should talk to Marvin Levy about it. So I did, who is Steven's publicist. And he said, yeah, he says, you know, that's extremely sensitive of you. And I think it's a really, really great idea. So then it was announced that while this was spring of 2019, it was announced that it was not going to be out until the end of 2020. Uh, that was a long time to wait, in which we did other things like the disaster box set and whatever. The uh, thought was, okay, well, I guess we'll just make it a 30th anniversary edition, come out in 2021. 
Well, then 2020 comes and COVID hits. One of the consequences of COVID was that it's announced that the release of West Side Story is going to be delayed a full year to the end of 2021. A lot of changes happened, of course, for everybody at that time, not least of which was at Amblin, where it was kind of shut down and left sealed up with nobody there for like a period of six months. Everybody working from home. We lost Marty. And then we uh, get to 2021 and October comes and we lose Leslie. So, and the people that I had been dealing with at Amblin were also now gone and it was a new set of people. Now I had extra worries about uh, the approval process because, you know, I had to go back to square one and explaining to somebody new what this release was. Fortunately, uh, Frank Marshall connected me with the right person and he was fully briefed and really appreciated my desire to wait. But uh, West Side Story ended up coinciding with um, another surge in a COVID variant in that December, where I think people were only going to make time for one movie and it ended up being Spider-Man. And so West Side Story did not do well. Creatively, it was quite an achievement, but we had to wait for the whole Oscar season to kind of come and go. So finally, we get to the spring of 2022, and then, at last, they can look for the right moment to discuss this with Steven Spielberg. And I eventually then got the email saying, he's listened, he thinks it's great, go ahead. Wow. (laughs) Now, you might think that's the end of the story, but it wasn't, because (laughs) um, since we have songs, it means, therefore, that people are singing. And you can't just throw them out on a CD, you have to clear them. The rules for such things are that first they have to give permission and they also have the right to negotiate how much they get paid. There was no point in starting that process until we had the Steven Spielberg okay. Because, you know, really, what would the purpose be to get them all to okay and then Steven Spielberg says no. So we had to wait that long. So the first step is, of course, to figure out who they all are. And guess what? Nothing was on file. The Screen Actors Guild had nothing on file for the project, and uh, the scoring materials didn't uh, identify the singers. We had some first names. Through the networking of the people that know about uh, what all had transpired, we eventually were able to identify most of them. It took a long time to reach out to every single one, form relationships with them, and get their okay, and everybody was very agreeable to the terms that were offered. includes all the Lost Boys, who sing that workout song, Pick Em Up, everybody who sings in the pirate sequence, and Bobby Page, who sang the demos in 2002 for Leslie, which I could just say quickly was there was an attempt made at that time for Leslie to merge the hook songs with songs he and Anthony Newley, his longtime creative partner, had done in 1976 for a television adaptation of Peter Pan musical um, starring Mia Farrow and, and Danny Kaye. So he wanted to merge those into a potential new Peter Pan stage musical, and that's why demos were recorded at that time of some of the hook songs um, that had not been recorded in 1991. Um, Bobby has probably sung more demos for Leslie than anybody else over the years um, for all of his shows. So uh, she was only too happy to have them finally included. But that work had to all be done along with all the publishing work. This basically took another whole year. So uh, finally, once all of that administration was buttoned up, we at last 
got it done, and here we are, finally coming out seven years later, and boy, am I exhausted. <laughs> an achievement to put these things together i mean uh, i know that we discussed these aspects uh, in also in other occasion but i mean the, the whole background story that you gave us today is a shining example of how much work there is behind the scenes we know that many fans are very impatient and anxious to have their favorite movie scores available on cd and collect them uh, throughout the years and and have them all them done properly like you always do. But really, you gave us a true masterclass of how much care and detail and hard work there is to put these things together properly. And I think it's key to understand for people that it's not just about having the music all taken care of in terms of audio and remastering and so on and so forth, but it, there's also a huge amount of paperwork and legal stuff to do which can be a truly a headache oh, yeah i don't i don't think there's ever been a project that's been this involved the sound of music comes close that's why it's interesting that uh, they're coming out at the same time because that was an equal amount of work both audio wise and administratively and the 30 something thousand words that i wrote for the book that's coming with the super deluxe edition of it dealing with julie andrews um, on it who had the approval of everything and on, on, on Hook, the principal actors, you know, for all their photos, I had to go to the reps for all of them. Yeah, so uh, it's more went into this than you could possibly imagine. I'm kind of shocked that we managed to keep a lid on it this long. But uh, <laughs> we've, you know, crossed all the T's and dotted all the I's and um, sprinkled the pixie dust where it was needed. And finally, finally, it's out. Yeah, and it looks gorgeous. I mean, even looking at the packaging by Jim Titus, I mean... It, it seems to me that everyone who worked on this in any capacity or role truly pulled out all the stops to do their best work. And that, of course, includes you, Mike. Well, thank you. Thank you. You know, one word I think which is key, which I think summarizes things quite succinctly, is integrity. And, and I think uh, this is something you have in, a, in abundance because what really sums your methodology up is purely that word. It is integrity. And, you know, the title, as soon as you open up the this beautiful package, is an awfully big soundtrack. And, uh, you know, and that uh, sets, the, <laughs> it sets the tone straight away, like any film score, any good film score would for its film. You know, you, setting the tone, as you both know, is so, so, so key. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you. Um, it just was one of them that had to be right just happened to require a lot of work and a lot of waiting and a lot of, uh, you know, interacting with other people. It's really very profoundly affecting to me because of the loss of Marty Cohen and Leslie Brickus through it all. We d I've dedicated it to Leslie, um, you know, and uh, I'm so sorry that we didn't uh, get it done in 2019 when he was still with us. But uh, I think this is a nice capper 
to my um, friendship and collaboration with him on many, many projects. He was just, just the dearest uh, person. And I, and I still miss him. I miss both of them. I miss both Marty and Leslie. This is something that speaks so eloquently about how these things are also uh, something intimate and personal and even profound for people working on it and, and also for the listeners. I mean, like every great piece of art, it speaks on a personal level and on an intimate level. And this is no exception. And speaking of John, it seems like Hook has always been a part of his life, even well after the uh, the film was released in theaters because he still plays regularly the overture Flight from Neverland in many of his concerts. He opened the 2020 Vienna Philharmonic concert exactly with that piece. And he also created theme suites from other cues. And it seems to me that it's something that still is a part of his musical life. Yeah, so it has, uh, it has, um, there's, a, there's been a lot to mine there for the concert hall. Yeah. So, um, so therefore the melodies are sort of never far from his mind. Um, yes. Because he, he conducts them fairly frequently. And I think that maybe um, being reminded that they had begun a life as uh, songs. And then also, you know, taking into account that he might have also been affected by the loss of Leslie because they were very close friends. Yes. Um, since the early 60s. Yeah. And um, it was nice to, for example, to see the overture for Goodbye, Mr. Chips be revived for, I think it was Keith Lockhart. Yes. Brought that back out. Yeah. Um, so, so, you know, we can't um, dis disregard that he would have been affected by that also. This really ended up being a nice uh, tribute to Leslie. And not least of which is because of the character of the assembly, as I said before, because it takes on a new life of its own and a separate, brand new pathway into this music that none of us were expecting. Through that, the collaboration, in a sense, lives on and takes on um, and, and, and lives in a different way that we had no idea existed, but, but now does. You know, with the uh, with the the baggage of all that out of the way from the past, and now that we know what we have, you know, I'm very very grateful for the uh, participation of uh, uh, Dennis and the other guys who will be on with us next time to now talk about our own feelings about um, the material and why it works and and our thoughts about uh, and what we got out of listening to it and, and uh, working with it. Yes, it's very important that listeners will have the opportunity to experience this new release uh, by discovering uh, all the surprises that are in there and then can 
make a new relationship with the music and even the film itself. I mean, I know this is a favorite for many people, both the film and the score, but truly this new release presents everything under a new shining light. It's quite an achievement and truly, Mike, I want to be maybe not the first one, but one of the many that says thank you for all the work that you did on this. Oh, well, you're welcome. I mean, I think that everybody who's heard it, worked on it, and then you guys, when you've heard it, everybody ended up forming a new connection with this music. And I think the listeners deserve that same chance. So my, my advice, if you don't have it already, if it's coming, don't just go and cherry pick songs and listen. Experience that disc three as we've put it together and allow yourself um, to uh, have it speak to you personally. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. A hundred percent, yeah. I mean, and this is it. I mean, you look at it, I mean, you could look at it as, uh, what, it's a disc per decade. You know, it's uh, <laughs> three discs and it's, uh, I mean, it's just under four hours. So the key message here is to actually set aside that time to experience the album and, uh, you know, not cherry pick uh, and actually, uh, I suppose, appreciate the the work and a love that's gone into it. Because, I mean, it's certainly, it sounds that way whenever, you know, you, you complete disc three with some beautiful uh, alternates and uh, music, which we never even have heard before, um, which we'll talk more in, in future episodes, of, as we've alluded to. Yes, for sure. Uh, maybe four hours in one go is a lot to ask, but, you know, certainly listen to the full film score, but set aside that separate 75 minutes for disc three as its own thing. Yes. Its own audio and musical alternate trip into the, the story of Hook. Um, you know, I don't think anybody would be disappointed. It's, it was quite remarkable because all of us, once it all came together, were kind of really shocked at uh, how effective it was. Yes, it is. Absolutely. And before wrapping up, I want to ask you something about uh, an upcoming project that you have, Mike, which still relates to uh, something very dear to you, which is Fiddler on the Roof, because you are now working on the live-to-picture concert presentation for these movies. So it seems that Fiddler on the Roof is still very much part (laughs) of your daily life. Mm. Oh, yes. Uh, Yes, yes, yes. And uh, I'm grateful for it, uh, the opportunity to work on the live uh, concert which has been a lot of work and very different kind of work for me than uh, the soundtrack work. So this year has overall been very different because it was so filled with administrative duties and with the concert work on this, which was very, very different. So I've enjoyed the change, but um, the ad, the, this level of admin I could probably do without. So I'm looking more forward to getting actually back to the music, which is the fuel in the tank and the projects that come and go in five or six weeks rather than five or six years. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely, Mike. So guys, I think it's time for a wrap today. It has been a wonderful conversation as usual. It was so great to hear you, Mike, sharing all these stories and anecdotes and background information about how this wonderful release of Hook has come together. To our listeners, don't worry, this isn't the last time we'll talk about Hook. Actually, we'll be back very soon to talk more about this release and and to focus our attention specifically on the music and to what the music means to us as John Williams admirers. And to do so, we will be very happy to have two additional guests, actually two returning guests, 
One is a film music writer, John Takis, who was here with us in the last episode talking about Hyde Engineer and who also wrote the beautiful essay that you can read at thelegacyofjohnwilliams.com. Check it out. And we'll also have Jason LeBlanc, who, together with Mike Maracino and John Takis, has written the beautiful liner notes that accompany this release. So, guys, thank you so much again for the conversation today. Thank you, Maurizio. Thank you, uh, guys, for you know letting me get uh, kind of all of that backstory and baggage uh, out of the way. I think that's uh, really um, for the best. No, it's been very entertaining. Absolutely. And thank you, Tim. And uh, we will see you very soon again. <laughs> Absolutely. Looking forward to it, yeah, because there's so much more to say about Hook. And uh, three CDs, and uh, the, you know there, there would be a lot to say. So it's definitely worth the wait. Yes, a lot to explore, and I look forward to it. It's been great, and to our listeners, Happy New Year. You'll hear from us very soon in 2024. Bye-bye, guys. You too. Okay, take care, gents. Bye.